This is the Oil & Gas Startups Podcast, where we showcase emerging technology and the stories of industry founders, investors, and leaders with your hosts, Jake Corley and Colin McClelland. Welcome back to another episode of Oil & Gas Startups Podcast. What's up, Colin? What's going on, man? Not much, man. A little worn out from jiu this morning, day two. Yeah, did we tell everybody about how I got you started in jiu-jitsu? No, we probably should. After three years, finally got Jake in the gym, trying some jiu-jitsu, and I think he's low-key dying right now, but he's making it. I'm low-key dying, but I'm already also prepping to compete, too. (laughs) (laughs) One one step at a time. (laughs) (laughs) Haven't even gotten a gi yet. Really quick before we get into the show, if you haven't followed our vlog yet, Digital Wildcatters, you can look it up on YouTube. Or you can just click the link in the show notes if you're interested. We're kind of just documenting our process with all the stuff that we're doing with with Wellhub and with River Oaks operating and Deep Rock and everything else that we're involved in. So if you want to watch that, just go subscribe. Mash that button as a lot of the YouTubers say, right? That's what the young kids say. And if you want to support the show, leave us a review if you could. Do you have any good reviews to read? Yeah, I got one here from Christopher. He said, great podcast. It's completely unique. So short and sweet. I like it. It's good. Yeah, it's a good thing. Thanks, Christopher. Appreciate you, man. If you guys haven't, leave us a review on our podcast. I know we've talked about this in some previous episodes, but the five-star reviews, don't leave us a review if it's a shitty review. Just leave us five stars. (laughs) Only five-star reviews. (laughs) Really helps us out, guys. So appreciate you taking the time to do that. Do you have any other news? No, I think that's it, man. Oh, also, go check out Justin's new podcast, Justin Gaither, our good old buddy. Yeah. The Justin's Onshore man. Podcast, sponsored by Tendeka. Is that how you say it, Tendeka? Yeah, Tendeka. Yeah. Okay, yep. cool. Yeah, go check that out as well. Yeah. yeah that's everything we got, man. So, what are we talking about today? So, we've got Rebecca Shippen with us. Hi, What's up, guys. Rebecca? How are you? Good. So, you were the CEO of RDS, aka Reservoir Data Systems. Mm-hmm. What do you guys do? Well, we are a data acquisition, integration, and visualization companies. So we go out to well locations. We'll put really good quality sensors on the wells and collect that data, stream it real time back to a dashboard where you can log in and see what's going on remotely. So a lot of the work that we do are going to be frack interference monitoring. We have some High quality data for defit testing, pressure transients, and things like that. So we do have some other off the cuff things that we do offshore, but the the heartbeat of our business and mainly what we do is the data acquisition, integration, and vis- visualization. So. Okay, what what types of data do you guys collect? Is it like volumes, pressures? Yeah, majority is going to be pressure, and it's high quality data, good resolution. You're going to call us if you really want to make sure that you're getting good data. And you, you don't want to afford any slip-ups. You need to make sure that you have that high resolution, you know, every second, multiple times a second, you're going to call us for that. Okay. I don't get too in the weeds yet, mm-hmm. but you said you guys have some offshore products. Are you guys mostly land-based? Is that kind of your clientele right now? Or are you trying Ma- to- Majority. Actually, when we started in business, we were all offshore, but that was, you know, we've been in business, we're going on our f- 15th year this oh, wow. year. So okay. yeah, yeah, we've been been around the block, but when we started, we were predominantly offshore and then we made the, the switch to where just following the money, essentially, what our customers were doing and, and what they needed, and they needed some good products for onshore. And so we took what we were doing offshore and 
and were a part of the Eagleford before anybody knew it, it was the called the Eagleford. So, awesome. Yeah. So RDS has been around 15 years. Have you been around that whole time? Or? I have. Yeah. Wow. Okay, so I guess that'll kind of transition there. So let's talk a little bit about you before we get into the weeds of RDS and, yeah. and y'all. So you platform. actually interviewed us before we got on the microphone. So now that you know our entire I'm life kind, I'm kind of thinking Rebecca needs her own podcast. You know, know. She's pretty good at the, the interview came process. came out swinging with questions. <laughs> As a, like, this is like, what, our 20th episode, I think? And that was the yeah. first time I've had someone come in here and like, no, tell me about, about you guys first. You guys, <laughs> hey, you guys are really cool. Y'all need to interview yourselves. I mean, this whole um, space is awesome. Y'all are pretty accomplished dudes. So. <laughs> I think you're hyping us up a little bit, but anyway, so tell us a little bit about yourself. I mean, from, you know, from starting birth, point. Yeah. From birth. Yeah. Okay. Okay. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Should have brought some uh, breakfast in here for that. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I'll just start talking and, and direct me where you want to want the story to go. Yep. But so we actually, I'll, I'll talk a little bit about how RDS started and where it came from. So it was, it started as a family business. Where I was, I, I had my daughter very young in life, and so I was a mother, and I was actually going to petroleum engineering school, and I was about, I think, along in the sophomore year of uh, petroleum engineering at Texas A&M, and at the same time, my father, who was in oil and gas, grew up in oil and gas, I swore I would never get in it. I, I didn't, I had nothing, I did not want to have anything to do with it when I was a kid, but, you know, you find yourself in these places, and so... We kind of fell on some short times as a family financially, and uh, my father was, you know, facing kind of an early retirement, and and just we just had some tough times. So I remember going home and sitting around the breakfast table, and my dad had this brilliant idea, and we took he took seven thousand dollars and got some equipment, and it was like if I can just go and put these gauges on the well, then we can get some data back, do some pressure transient analysis, and that should be able to get us through until, you know, the next season in our life. Okay. I've had one pressure transient analysis class with Tom Blassing game. I'll, you know, I can help where I, where I can. And so that's what we did. We started in our garage and we started with one set of gauges of $7,000 and just grew the business organically. Next thing you know, we get more and more customers. And I remember the first, my father hired an amazing man. His name is Coach. He is known in South Louisiana by literally everybody. He used to be a basketball coach. He's, I think he's like, I don't know, Coach, I'm sorry if you're listening to this. I think he's like <laughs> 80-something, but I mean, he you wouldn't know it. He just, he literally knew everybody in Louisiana, and he was our very first hire. That was very scary. So when we hired him, then just business accelerated. So, wow. But yeah. So bootstrap from the garage. I don't think we've had a, a garage story on here no, yet on the, the podcast. I mean, we've had some bootstrap companies, but not like that. Starting out in the garage with you know one set of physical equipment and scaling yeah. it up from there. So, where were you guys located at when you when you started this? I mean, were you guys out in, in West Texas here in Houston? Where are you from originally? So, like I said, I grew up in oil and gas. So I claim anywhere along I ten home. Um, <laughs> I am a Texan. I was born in Texas, but we lived in Louisiana and Florida. I mean, just so anywhere along I ten. We started this business. So we were here in, in in Houston, and my yeah, my father actually did most of the work offshore. So he would go offshore and bring the data back and and, and all that stuff. So most of our business in the early years, we were uh, predominantly offshore, and then moved to onshore, I don't know, I guess that was circa 2008, 2009, right when the Eagleford was kind of started popping off. Yeah. Yeah. So we made that transition. We still do stuff offshore. The stuff that we do offshore is going to be more 
acoustic, you know, looking scale detection and maybe some some other monitoring and things like that. So okay, yeah. So how has the how has RDS kind of transformed over the years? Because you know we've seen we've seen the platform. We've we've ran through it a few times and. How did you, you know, you kind of went from physical equipment company, I'm assuming that you guys didn't have any software, you know, back in the early days to, you know, interpret all that data. No. Oh, my gosh. So I'm so glad that technology, you know, exists. So, yes, we we had all of our equipment. So we'd go and install gauges on the well. And we had to go to the well site to download the data on the gauge, bring it back, process it, plot it, send it to the engineer via email. And, you know, you're talking about like, 10 meg files and trying to figure all that out. Then we were able to, we developed our first kind of communications system because that became cost prohibitive for us. Like we were just weren't making as much money because we were having to pay Mm -hmm. to send someone to location. And so we developed our first communications system out of necessity just to get our customers data quicker. And then, but with that system, you know, we were waking up, it was me and one other engineer and we were waking up at 3 a.m., every single day to download everybody's data, plot it and send it out to them. I was like, that's not fun. <laughs> so now we that and then we eventually developed the real time deal to where I don't have to wake up on Christmas morning at three AM to make sure <laughs> that our customers get Life's data. probably a little bit better for you nowadays, huh? There's other <laughs> challenges now, but yeah, yeah. It's not much different than when you're at GDS where Jake having download data every night after midnight. Yeah. And also dealing with pumpers too, because a lot of a big part of what we were doing there was the field data capture. And so it's capturing gauges, it's capturing run tickets, it's capturing LOEs and invoices, all sorts of things. And, you know, a lot of these guys would get home and enter this information for some reason at like 1130 at night and they would have issues with something or they didn't understand something. And so who do they call? Me, obviously. So <laughs> there were so many nights where I was up just like super late troubleshooting over the phone with somebody who like, you know, I couldn't use like TeamViewer and just like log in and stuff because they just didn't have good internet, right? <laughs> so, yeah, I can understand the struggle. Yeah. So, and we've, we've come a, a long way. So we still have equipment. We still in, invest in having good quality gauges and sensors for that high quality type of data. But yeah, definitely the real-time communications is just, our industry is really transformed and changed so much in the past 10 years Mm -hmm. like people understand the value of data and really and truly i believe that our industry is kind of behind the times if you compare us to like the retail industry and Mm -hmm. what they're doing with data healthcare i mean i think there's just so many open doors and opportunities for our our industry to take advantage of like that technology and analytics and all that science so. Yeah, well, I guess as a goldmine when you start looking at digital technology and data, and I think that's kind of been a running theme from every tech platform that's come on our podcast. Everybody says the same thing. I mean, it's no secret within our little circle, within our community, that oil and gas is easily a decade behind other industries that are, are building out these softwares and, and tech platforms that are able to handle all that all of that data and make sense of it. So I think uh, you're, you're right along with everybody else and, and having yeah. that. But we've seen, and maybe you can kind of give your insight, you know, especially in the last, you know, just two years, it seems like there, there's kind of been a cultural shift where we've seen people adopting new technology. Have you guys seen anything on that front in, in the last couple of years, or has it just kind of been steadily increasing in the adoption rate for technology? Yeah, no, I think so. I think you know, and this is just an opinion, not backed by fact or anything. 
I believe that we have probably a little bit younger generation in our industry and they get it and they're more okay with technology and they're bringing that to our industry. They are the ones that are championing the change for these larger organizations. Let's utilize data. Let's really invest it. And it's going to take those type of champions to initiate that kind of change and, and say, hey, we can really, I know that it's a big investment up, up front, but look mm-hmm. what it can do for our organization if we can capitalize on it and use it and help us to make better decisions. Mm-hmm. So I think, yes, there is a shift in our industry, and I, I absolutely attribute it to kind of the younger workforce and bringing that to the table. So the companies, you know, we, we work with a, a major EMPs, independents, and, and smaller operators, and the companies that we see really utilize data and invest in it in the science and technology, I mean, they are just doing so well, and they get it. And mm-hmm. I mean, you just like night and day from the companies that invest in acquiring and getting the data and the companies that don't, which is like night and day. So, Very interesting. Do you see any issues with, so I, I've seen some hard data, and this is what we kind of used when, when talking about WellHub, is that 97% of the data collected today is never really used. Right? Yes. So operators and I guess the industry as a whole are kind of just overwhelmed mm-hmm. with just so much data. Do you see that? Because, I mean, you're enabling them to capture more information, but do you sometimes see that they have a hard time translating that into insights? Yes, yeah. I think that is that is one of the hurdles that our industry has. And that's where you, like, you can't just capture data. You have to also invest in the right resources to utilize it, whether that's a data scientist or I believe, you know, when I was going through engineering school, teams, there was asset teams that were essentially you had your reservoir engineer, completion engineer, drilling engineer and geologist all work together on an asset. Right. I believe the new team will have data scientist, reservoir engineer, completion engineer. I really believe that that is going to be a part or needs to be a part of the solution for us to be able to utilize the data. Capturing is it isn't, that's, you know, that's like me getting a gym membership and never going. I can get it, but I'm not going <laughs> to get the results I want if I never actually utilize it. It's the same thing. So. Yeah, absolutely. And we have this conversation a lot with young petroleum engineers telling them that they need more technical skills to really you know, make themselves an asset moving mm-hmm. forward in these EMPs because you're going to start to see that digital transformation where mm-hmm. management teams are made up out of data scientists and people that have technical skills relating to that. So and that kind of brings me to a question that I had about y'all's platform. So are you guys, you're just capturing data and then the EMPs are utilizing that data however they, they see fit or do you guys provide any services or analytics on your platform to make sense of that data? Yeah, so we've always provided analysis for defits and pressure transit analysis. You know, so we do provide analysis. One of the platforms that we're building right now, developing, is going to have some more real-time analytics for defits and things like that. Most of the data that we do, we ship it to a platform where you can log in, you can see it, you can see it real-time plotting, and and then phase two. Version two is going to be some more analytics. And then we're going to continue to advance and grow with offering all kinds of really neat analytics. I think one of the issues that we have in our industry with data is you have, you know, large E&P company over here that has all kinds of data. And then you have their competitor that has all kinds of data. And really where the benefit is, is being able to amass that data together. But there's barriers for that to happen because they it's competing data. And mm-hmm. um, so if there's a solution where you can actually take this company's data on a platform or database and, and put this company's data, 
and be able to analyze that, that would be very, very powerful. And I think it would absolutely transform the way that we analyze now. Like some of the, the tools that we use, like DFITs and PTAs, I don't know that you would need that if you could look at all the data and do data science on it. Mm-hmm. Well, hub. <laughs> Is that a shameless well hub? <laughs> I'm just calling well hub. <laughs> Is that why you're smiling over there? You're looking at me. <laughs> She's like, Jay's like, yeah, you're picturing my product for me. <laughs> yeah, no big deal. <laughs> But on on that point and and kind of going back to the generational shift with younger generations coming into, I think that what we're seeing is more collaboration within Mm -hmm. the industry. And I think that's only going to continue to increase. So obviously, you know, you have proprietary data that can't be shared, but it does seem like we're seeing more collaboration between like consortiums and things like that. Yeah, exactly. There are more consortiums out there. Look at the blockchain one here that's Mm -hmm. led by Equinor. I mean, these oil companies are literally coming together and saying, hey, we don't know what the fuck blockchain is. How can we how can we utilize it? And we need to figure this out together. And they understand that, you know, a technology like that really to capture the full value has to be a team effort. And I think that they're going to start to realize this on the data side too. Mm -hmm. Like, Hey, we can't fully leverage the amounts of data that we have unless we all kind of put our heads together. And and that kind of collaboration is needed because you can come together to build an amazing technology and amazing use cases, but the competitive advantage is who's going to execute the best on it. Right. Mm -hmm. So you can still remain competitive while collaborating at the same time. Yep. I believe you. That's why I invested in Wellhub. So. <laughs> <laughs> so going back to your personal story, one thing that kind of sticks out here to me is that we've only had one. We had a, a team of women on the show from mm-hmm. Rust Patrol. So it's not very often that we get to talk to someone like you that's kind of been through. So like Rust Patrol was still pretty early stage. You know, they'd, they'd raised some capital, but mm-hmm. we're going through another round. So you're the first person that we've had on the show that's been a female CEO of a company that's got, you know, a 15-year tenure. And I know that we've had, we have a big portion of listeners that might be aspiring entrepreneurs that are women. And I don't think it's any secret that it's harder for a woman to make it as a CEO or entrepreneur, especially in oil and gas. So what are kind of some of the hardships that you've seen, not just from scaling a tech company in oil and gas, but being a woman and doing that? Because I know there has to be some hardships that you've probably found to be unique. Any good stories too? Oh, wow. Um, I do. (laughs) Not not to put you on the spot. (laughs) I have lots of embarrassing stories. So yeah, I have a lot to say about this. And I don't know that Honestly, I don't know that I might be the best person to ask this. I would say starting out my career, I think there were some, there were a little bit of obstacles. And honestly, I really believe like people, and this, I'm a stereotype here, so hopefully you don't get hate mail. What I have observed, people typically under the age of 40, there's, that just doesn't exist in that generation. I don't know what it is. I just have never come across someone under the age of 40 that really kind of sees me any different or Mm -hmm. treats me any different. So I don't, you know, that with starting out my career that I probably noticed a little bit more, but now I don't, I don't notice where anybody treats me any different because I'm a woman. I think here's the advice that I would get, I would give to ladies out there that are listening You've got to be very confident in yourself and know that you cannot, and it is not your responsibility to control what anybody else thinks about you. Your job is to deliver results and do your very best. 
And if they don't like you or they don't think that you should be doing whatever, that's not your problem. You go to bed and you leave it and you get up the next day and you kill it. And that would be my advice, not just to women, but to anybody, because there's going to be someone out there that doesn't like you because you have brown eyes. There's going to be someone out there that doesn't think that you can do what you need to do because of whatever. And so being a woman, being a minority, being anything, there's always going to be someone that judges you. You just wake up, you kill it, you focus on results. When you start looking at, oh, they treated me this way, or they they didn't think I was good enough, or because of something, you get a chip and you start focusing on that instead of focusing on what you're there to do. So that's my, that's the only advice. That was fucking that. great. Yeah, that was good. Being resilient and having confidence in yourself. That's why I try to you know, tell everybody that you can't you know have be moping around and feel sorry for yourself. And mm-hmm. you know there is. I agree with you. I feel like the younger generations that there's not that that discrepancy yeah. where where we feel like that. But even like with uh, Russ Patrol, you remember they were telling us that one of the venture capitalists that they were raising capital from, you know, were asking them when they planned on getting married and pregnant, and you know, it's just like super inappropriate questions. Like nobody would ever ask me when I'm raising capital when I'm yeah. I'm, planning on having babies like don't worry i already had i already had three of them i'm I'm out of the game i'm not having any (laughs) more well i think i think there's something that that needs to be i think sometimes there's just an awareness now though that we need to be respectful of of other people's differences and some people i think you look at their intentions they mean well and i also want to tell people that are out there that want to be entrepreneurs or leaders that there's part of it that you're just going to have to be vulnerable. That's part of that just comes with the business. You have to be humble and vulnerable and know that people want to know about you. I think you look at the intentions. Why are they asking me this question? Is it to get at me or just they're curious? So, Mm -hmm. you know, I've, I've found that out too, that running a business and being a leader is the most, if you're doing it right, humbling experience you can't do it and be successful with any ounce of pride like you have to serve your people you have to put them first and know that you're going to get your feelings hurt and you know you just you got to have you got to show up to work and not just like professional Rebecca you have to show up Rebecca being very vulnerable and and being very real so that's great that's probably some of the best advice on the show I like that oh thank you I'm gonna make a sound bite out of that Posted on LinkedIn. That was great. Yeah, that so, was great. <laughs> do you do you think it was? If you had to choose one thing, that would be probably one of the biggest challenges that you've experienced. You know, in your role as CEO and growing the company, would it be building a product and product development and bringing that to market and sales, or would it be more so building the team and managing your people? Hands down, I would tell you it's people. I would agree. So for us too. we don't get me wrong. We've had issues developing product. We're figuring it out. We literally fail forward all the time. And but it's it's developing people and making sure that you have the right team, the right values in place, being very intentional about this is what I want this to look like. We will tolerate this. We won't tolerate this. This is where we're going. You're on board or you're not. And then just investing in your people. And building those relationships, that is the most important thing. Then, Because if you surround yourself with smart people, you care about them, and then you challenge them, they're going to develop the products. I mean, all the other stuff will come. But if you don't have that in place, then, you know, you're just biding time until Mm -hmm. 
you can't do it. I mean, that this business sustainability is about the people. Mm-hmm. One of our good friends, uh, David Ramsenwood, he made this post about in the interview process. And one of the things he asked himself is if he was stuck in an elevator for two hours with the person, would he be okay with that? You know, and if the answer was no, then they didn't get hired. No, right? exactly. Despite everything else, do you have any like wisdom or any tricks or anything that you kind of go by maybe in the hiring process or any hunches that you kind of go on? Oh, yeah. So we've I've learned so much in this area. Now, I, everybody that's listening, I want to make sure that I'm very honest and say that I've I've failed a lot as a leader and I have made mistakes and there has been casualties because of some of the decisions that I've made. So I have failed people before. So the lessons that I've learned is coming from that failure. I just want to make sure that I'm very clear that I have not been perfect, but I do want people to learn from where I have failed. So we actually now are going through kind of a 12-step hiring process. It's like a little bit ridiculous, but one of the most impactful things that we are doing now in hiring is we will do a spousal dinner if you're married to where we will, like the manager and their spouse will take out the candidate and their spouse to go out to dinner because here's the, for a couple of reasons. One, you aren't just hiring that person. If they're, they have a family, you are hiring that family. And you are, they, they're joining the team too. So when this person goes home at night, guess who they talk to? They talk to that spouse or you know, that partner or whatever. And you want to make sure that they're on board. That's number one. And two, people cannot, uh, when their spouse is sitting right there, they can't joke you. I mean, like you'll see who they are and you'll see the dynamics. And that is very telling to, to know, like, do we want to bring this person in? You know, he keeps getting nudged or whatever. And then three, you want to make sure they're not married to crazy because that just never works out. <laughs> so it's, that, that's been one of the best things we've done in hiring. But we, yeah, we have a very extensive hiring process because you are literally asking someone to marry you, essentially, right? Mm-hmm. After like a 30-minute interview, no. I mean, like, it's got it. You've got to really make sure that you're on board. I really like that a lot. I mean, all my interviews that I ever had on the oil field, I mean, maybe hour, hour and a half long interviews. I'm like, man, you're, you know, hiring an employee to come out and build your company based off of an hour interview. And I mean, Jake and I have had, I mean, we, this is probably our biggest downfall and failure that we've had up to this point in business is in hiring and you know we've made some bad hires and it's never a good situation but i really like that advice you know taking taking them out to dinner i mean think about it we take how many people do we take to lunch and dinner and that's where you really get to know someone mm-hmm. and you know if they have a spouse that's i love you know you gotta see if they're married to crazy because that does make a big <laughs> it makes a huge difference does make a huge difference so <laughs> Yeah. And it's actually, you know, before we started recording, you're asking me about this book. I've got a book by Jocko sitting on my desk and I was actually listening to one of his podcasts the other day. And like you, I, you know, I can listen to Jocko, you know, about once a month, but he had this really good episode and he was talking about some prisoners of war in World War II and they, they surrendered. And when they surrendered the uh, commanding general, he took responsibility and he said, I will pay the the price for this. You know, I'm claiming ownership of us surrendering. And that's the sign of a good leader. And so when I hear you say those things, you know, you're talking about your failures and, and admitting to your shortcomings in those. I mean, that's always a tell-all sign for me of you're a good leader. So that's, you oh, know, thank you. I've seen 
I have some companies in mind that I'm thinking about right now where their CEOs are pieces of shit that don't uh, <laughs> don't own up to their decisions. And I hope they're listening because they know who I'm talking about. So, <laughs> but that's I think that's very important for anybody that's ever you know not just a CEO or a founder in a company, but you know if you're senior level management or you have any people under you, you have to be that leader, especially in oil and gas. You know I've I've personally I've fucked up ten million dollar wells by myself and I owned up to it. And guess what? I'm still here today to talk about it. Nobody, yeah. mm-hmm. no, I wasn't reprimanded that bad for it. So that, that's something that's always really important yeah. to me. As CEO, anything goes wrong at the company. It is ultimately your fault. Yeah. If your people are failing, you're failing. You are ultimately responsible. For, and I will tell you, that is a huge weight. And for, for people that are listening that are aspiring to be, you know, a CEO or to lead a company, you don't get to, leave it at the office and go home. You have to develop very strong, broad shoulders. And I, for the longest time, I had trouble sleeping. I mean, you're always worried about, you know, I've gotten better at, okay, I've got a really good team. We're going to handle all the problems and I am going to go to sleep tonight and then we'll handle it tomorrow. But really the advice, you have to have very broad shoulders because it ultimately is all your responsibility. If something happens, it's on you, Mm -hmm. whether you handled it or not. It was on you, whether you took action or the wrong action or no action. That was your decision. So yeah, and you're not you're not just CEO of RDS, right? You're you're a board member for another company. Is that correct? So first financial bank, yeah, that's what. Oh, it was. okay. Abilene. Oh, that's why you're in yeah. Abilene. Yeah. So before we were recording, you were telling us about you being stuck in Abilene for what was it, 14 hours? You said. Yeah. Nobody gets stuck in the Abilene Regional <laughs> Airport. That was no Wi-Fi, no cell phone. Service. It was not. It was not good. I felt like I was in the Stone Ages. But yeah, I've served on a board for a brief stint for a physical therapy company. It was a great experience. I learned a lot with that. And uh, yeah. So. Awesome. Awesome. So, I'm kind of curious how. How was the process of scaling RDS? So obviously you guys started out of the garage. Mm-hmm. It's a physical equipment company. So I'm sure there's a lot of overhead that goes with, you know, providing all of that equipment and then, you know, developing the software on the back end as well. So did you guys grow this company off of revenue alone? Yeah. So we built our business out of cash flow. Wow. To this day, we have very minimal debt. That is my philosophy. So I think, yes, we could we have been three times the size and done all these things? We absolutely could. But my philosophy is we're going to build this thing out of cash flow and we're going to make sure that we are we have a sustainable business model first. Because here's my advice to people that are wanting to start businesses is that there's this thought in our industry that you have to go and raise a bunch of money and you have to, you know, get private equity. And, and those are absolutely great options. But I do want someone to know that you can start a business with you know your savings out of a garage and grow it slowly over time. Are mm-hmm. you going to be an overnight millionaire? No, but it, if you're going to do it that way, it's like the it's the tur- tortoise and the hare. You know, you will win a race. You're going to get there. You're going to be wealthy and if you can can be very disciplined about growing your business, you can attain all those things. It just might take 10 years. But when there's the next downturn, you're not going bankrupt either. So yeah. I just do want to encourage people. So yes, we did scale out of cash flow. We did get a line of credit to help us with cash flow. You know, mm-hmm. in our industry, like there is no net 30. I mean, everybody pays, you know. <laughs> net you know, it, Yeah, so if... <laughs> net 365. It's ridiculous, yeah. <laughs> but know? I mean, you really, you know, you, you hit the, the nail on the head when you're self-funded and you're working, you're operating within cash flow, you really mitigate 
your risk because all these companies get in trouble when a downturn hits or, you know, some unforeseen cir circumstances yeah. and you're over leveraged or you have investors to answer to and yeah. that, that becomes a problem. So, uh, you know, you're really kind of putting yourself in position to have a healthier company yeah. over the lifespan and ultimately kind of making it easier on yourself because you don't have that pressure of, you know, I mean, obviously you have pressure, but you don't have that pressure of worrying about if your business is going to go under, you know, that you can manage to survive. So that's, a, you know. Yeah. I mean, I'm not, and I'm not against people getting, like there are obviously some businesses, it makes sense. You have to, right? Mm -hmm. Here's what I would say though. You want to make sure that you have tested it, that your business is sustainable before you go get, like if you can at least operate on a you know, 1% scale for mm -hmm. a while to make sure that it's sustainable. Do that before you just go pitch some ideas, get some money. Because people that want to start their own businesses, that want to be entrepreneurs, be an entrepreneur. You don't want a boss. And when you go out and you get private equity or whatever, I'm sorry for all the private equity people listening. I'm just saying <laughs> that you have a boss. They're going to tell you how to run your business. And so, you know, maybe changing your business model a little bit to where you don't have to have all those bosses, you really get to feel what it's like to be a real entrepreneur. Yeah. I honestly don't think a lot of people understand that when you take capital from an investor, especially an institutional grade investor, like a private equity firm, that you have a boss and you have to answer to them. And if you underperform, you have to answer to them. And yeah. it's a, you know, it's not always a good situation, but something that Jake and I talk about a lot is that there's kind of like, you know, ever since we've gone through this like tech bro, <laughs> you know, a phase in the startup industry, everyone kind of treats it like it's a rite of passage that you have to go raise capital, yeah. and, you know, get some big, you know, series A funding. And it's not that way. And especially if you can build a business like you guys did where mm -hmm. you're cash flow positive and then you can start utilizing debt and lines of credit. And as long as your revenue can service the debt, mm -hmm. you know, that makes sense. You never hear anybody talk about, ex you know, utilizing debt. Everyone's always just talking about VC and private equity, and mm -hmm. those aren't your only financing options. Yeah. Last, last thing I, I kind of want to just say on this piece right here is if you are wanting to build your business out of cash flow, it's very important. Well, you know, regardless, in any way that you go uh, for funding, you have to be very disciplined. I have observed some friends that are super smart. They go out and they, they are wonderful entrepreneurs, start a business. But you have to make sure that you remain humble and kind of focused on what you're doing. Okay, so if you get some cash flow positive and you start returning and generating some revenue, you're in the black. Now's not the time to go buy the private jet. <laughs> Always, I mean, like Sam Walton, I mean, with Walmart, you know, he would recycle paper clips, you know. Keep that kind of discipline and diligence about what you're doing and stay disciplined for a while. And then you're going to wake up one day and look back 10 years and like it all paid off. So now we have more flexibility that we can do this. So I just want to because I, I see that a lot of times where once you get in the black and you start, you know, bringing in some dough, you can feel like, oh, man, I can relax a little bit. And let's go buy a Ferrari. Don't do that. I mean, that's literally the whole oil field mindset as a whole. I mean, every person that I know out in the field, you know, going out and spending 80 grand on a diesel F-250 fully loaded. And I'm like, look. Just because you're making six figures now, you should, you know, probably chill out for a few years and, and oil field trash making oil field cash. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You're not really an oil field hand if you don't have that sticker on the back of your truck. So yeah, no, I love that advice as well. So is there anything that like any big goals that you have in mind for 2019 for RDS or are you guys going to just keep trucking and, and taking the path? 
Yeah, so no, 2019 is going to be a really great year for us. So we just kind of rolled out our objectives for this year. And I, I recently rolled out kind of our three-year vision. I worked with the leadership team and we worked a lot on strategy and what our three-year vision is. And from that, just kind of broke it down. Just like, what are we going to work, focus on this year? And so we're we're going to be rolling out quite a, quite a bit of new products this year, taking the lessons that we learned from 2018. We didn't get very far where we wanted to be in 2018. So we're taking those lessons that we're learning and really focusing on execution. How can we make sure that we're getting these products out to our customers quickly, make sure that we're focusing on innovation, focusing on culture and our people, and focusing on making sure that we're running our company like a well-oiled machine. So yeah, 2009 is going to be really exciting. We do have three new products that we've been working on for a while that we're oh, going to cool. be rolling out this year. Be launching them this year, huh? I'm yes. sure that'll be exciting. Yeah. How, many, how many people do you have on your team at RDS now? Now about 20-ish. Okay. And I think this year we're probably going to be hiring, I think maybe somewhere around the four to five. It depends on how much our modeling our new products, what kind of revenue that brings. Mm-hmm. So we're kind of, we're fluid with that. If, okay. if we kind of have about 20% growth, we'll see about probably four. If we have more than that, then yeah. we're a lot more. So since you guys are a, a, both a hardware and a software company, where do you see, you know, where the, what are the bulk of your employees dedicated to? I mean, are you guys running like a lot of developers working on the software side? Do you have a lot of people, you know, on the sales team? Do you have a lot of people, you know, dealing with the hardware, you know, mm-hmm. how is that breakup kind of in, in y'all's internal workforce? It's changing. And we're actually going to, you know, I'm a petroleum engineer by trade. So to answer your question in a very long story, kind of when we started this thing, it was very easy to make decisions on, because I knew petroleum engineering, mm-hmm. right? And that's predominantly what we did. We're now data science like, and I don't know half the <laughs> acronyms or terminology. And so I am having to hire very good people that know that stuff. Mm-hmm. And they have to translate it for me, right? So they make those decisions and they, they do those things. So our, our organization is changing because there's a level of, of expertise that that we need that we didn't have before. So majority of our, so we have sales, sales staff, and we have our field services staff that will go to the field and install the equipment. And then we have a few developers. We're actually outsourcing a lot of our development. Are you? Cool. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. And it just, you know, just one of those things that made sense for us for right now. Mm-hmm. Will that be, in, you know, I'm, I am getting some pressure from f- some folks on our leadership team that's like, hey, we probably need to look at getting a developer yeah. at some point that will make sense for us. So It's just so hard here. You guys are headquartered in Houston, right? Yeah. Yeah, so it's so hard here. I mean, I think we've talked about this plenty of times on the podcast, but when you have to start building out that development team here in Houston, it's, you know, there's not a huge talent pool to pull from. And then when you when you do find someone, you know, they're they're able to go, you know, to an EMP, to a, an Exxon or BP, and they can demand a, a $200,000 salary, whatever it may be. So it's, you know, it's harder for some of these early stage startups to get those guys. And, you know, they're having to, that's why we're seeing companies go to Austin where there's a little bit bigger of a talent pool, but then, you know, these people don't have any oil and gas exposure. So yeah. it's kind of a, you know, a hard balance for some of the companies that we've talked to. And actually one of our friends, he moved up to Montreal and started a uh, coding office up there in Montreal and is getting all the programmers, Canadian programmers. So he was really smart. Yeah, you know, the the American dollar goes much further in Canada and plus you can get full stack devs for 40k a year and they're happy to do it. 
Huh. Shout out, Good. shout out to you, Joe. Don't, so, I don't want to give away your secrets. When you want a developer, okay. <laughs> we're well, actually we're throwing on the idea of opening an office down. up there too. <laughs> yeah, Montreal's the place to be. Joe's going to be up there, end up running a uh, developer shop for all these oil and gas startups by the time Sorry, it's Joe. over. <laughs> <laughs> so no, that's uh, the, the reason I was asking this is it's just you know like with Jake with Wellhub, Jake never wanted to get into the physical equipment side of things, and you know that kind of makes it a, an easier scope when you can just focus on developing the software. But you know, seeing you guys going from starting out with gauges and then kind of shifting and transforming into the software company. It's just really interesting to hear about that dynamic and, and how you manage that. And one thing I want to ask is, you know, kind of going back to a leadership question, how do you manage, you know, you're getting these really intelligent people on your team, these mm-hmm. really smart data scientists. And I know that it can be a problem for founders to surround themselves by people that are smarter than them and mm-hmm. manage them. Do you have any advice for people on that topic? Because I think that the death of some companies are that CEOs and founders are intimidated to hire people that are smarter than them. Mm-hmm. And so they settle for, you know, maybe six or sevens on a scale of, on the scale of 10 instead of going for those nines and tens. So have you had, an, you know, any, anything wow. really along those lines? Oh yeah, I could totally talk to this. So I'm, I'm going to go back to my comment that I made earlier to be a good leader and to have a sustainable business, successful business you have to be humble as a leader. You have to go in there and know that you are there for those people and your customers. And so you you check your ego at the door, you check your feelings at the door, and you just get stuff done. So if you have that mindset, it's it's a lot easier. These guys, everybody is they're smarter than me. When I walk into that room, like when when I'm talking to our sales guys, our fields, they are all smarter than me, really and truly. I, my job is just to go in there and to motivate them to do what they do best. That is a challenge. So that's like, you know, it's easy to say this, you know, on a podcast and it sounds really cool and cliche. <laughs> it is harder to do. It's, it's, it's harder to do in practice. But, but really, like, one of our guys, Bobby, he's, he's the data guy that, like, I, I've told him. I, I just, half the things that you're saying, I need you to explain it to me four times. Because I need to understand, but at the same time, I've learned that you have to give quite a bit of rope, and then a leader has to be okay with failure. That was kind of difficult for me to know that, like, in the back of my mind, I don't think this is going to work, but I don't know enough about this, but I'm going to let them have it. And inevitably, yes, are there some failures? Yes, there are. We are going to learn from them. But there's also all these other successes they've been able to bring to the table. So a leader needs to be okay with some level of failure. Build the boundaries, but you got to be okay with some level of failure. And then you've, you've got to empower people so that they can do what they do. Does it make me feel comfortable? No. I, there were, I forgot. There was in some book that I read, but I read that I was like, yes, that makes sense. To the degree that the leader is uncomfortable that is the degree that that company will succeed through other people. So I like that. I'm very uncomfortable at work. I'm very uncomfortable. Like John pushes me for all these ideas. He's got an idea every other day <laughs> um, or every other minute. But but he pushes me, and and it, it's it's good. I, I'm uncomfortable a lot of times. We want to make make sure that we're risk taker, discipline risk takers. Mm-hmm. The other the other thing I would say to that too, you know, I surround myself with diversity as far as making sure that yeah we have someone that. Let's the idea guy that huge optimist. We can do everything. We also have someone on our team that's like, well, have you considered this? Have you considered? So making sure that you are surrounding yourself and your team has diversity of skills and kind of also personalities. And Mm -hmm. from that, you'll come to the right 
table, last thing I'll say is you have to be okay with conflict. This is one of the lessons that I've learned recently is the best answer that an idea or whatever is when everybody comes to the table and they actually put everything on the table. Like you don't want a meeting after the meeting, right? If, if you have an idea or you disagree, say it. And so we've actually kind of built within our team like kind of a framework of how we're going to deal with conflict because I don't want you here if you have an idea and you don't say it or you don't agree and you don't say it. We've got to leave everything on the tables and you've got to be okay with conflict. So I agree with that yeah. 100%. I mean, I don't know how many meetings I've gone on to and I'm like, look, I don't like wasting people's time and I don't like my time wasted. I'm going to tell you everything that's on my mind and, you know, I mean it whether <laughs> it's blunt or not <laughs> and I expect the same and – I mean, shit, Jake and I have been working together for several years now, and there's not, you know, we have times of conflict, but we both get it out there. We get our feelings out on, you know, out on the table, like, okay, here's here's how I feel about it, here's how he feels about it, and we move past it, and we, we find a solution. It's usually and, settled in under two minutes. Yeah, yeah, yeah but, but we know we're honest and transparent with each other, with partners and employees that's, and whoever it may be. And that's be. trust, right? Mm -hmm. You guys don't have to agree. But we're, we're failing if we don't truly stay and can't, you know, like say where we stand and candid. You don't have to agree, but like you've got that trust if you both can come mm -hmm. to the table and say it. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. There's been That's plenty of times that I've been wrong about stuff. There's plenty of times that he's wrong about stuff. There's plenty of times he's like, we should do this. And I'm like, I don't know if we should do this, but I'm going to trust you. We're going to do that. <laughs> you know, and so, and things have worked out. So, you know, I think because we were. <laughs> Someone we were talking to somebody and they were like, so tell us what you guys fight about. And we're like, hmm. I know who it was. They were interviewing us to be on a TV show oh, on yeah, CMT. That's, yeah, that's it was. <laughs> what? <laughs> CMT? Random as fuck. Yeah, they, they reached out to us and they're like, we're looking to do a reality TV show on people in the oil industry. And so, you know, we entertained them. Yeah, they did a casting on us. And they're like, what do you guys fight about? And we looked at each other and I was like, I don't think we really fight about anything. I mean, we have disagreements, but we don't necessarily fight about anything. So, yeah, I guess that uh, that show never materialized on CMT. They're oh, missing sad. out. I know. Oh. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call Sarah out on this podcast. <laughs> I'm going to send her a clip of this. <laughs> so, no, this has been all great information. I get excited about like things like RDS because we're, you know, obviously we know about RDS through John. Uh, John's a friend of ours and we're talking about, you know, like, if, wow, if we could install sensors on our wells and I can pull out my laptop and get real-time data of what's going on out there and I'm sitting in my boxers at the house and, you know, if I can make a fully autonomous well site to where I don't, you know, have to rely on information from a pumper. I can get on my computer, see what's going on. And we've kind of taken this to the next level where we're talking about mesh networks with drones and shit like that. And, you know, being able to- Drone garages. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so we had this idea of a, of a drone that's out on location and it's got its own little garage and it pops out of there. And like, like, think of, like think about a Roomba, but for a well site, but a drone. So that's funny because we actually, my, my dad is, he is a brilliant idea guy. Like he just comes up with it and he, he actually bought a drone and was, was trying, it was trying it out. So it's kind of, that's funny. awesome. It's, well, there's a need for that, right? Yeah. And because, there's, yeah, yeah. there's actually, who's a company? Fuck. I can't remember their name. I was talking to them the other day, but they said that they've actually like, they've designed this mesh network and they can like deploy it out on refineries. And so if somebody in, enters a restricted area, these alarms will trip out and a uh, drone will come flying out and keep tabs on whoever's in that restricted area. So it's not, you know, technology's already here. And 
actually mentioning your dad, I was going to ask you, is this still family business or is what, what, what's your old man up to nowadays? So, yeah, no, he's, he's retired. He still comes up with ideas. Like uh, he's, he's text, you know, he texted me something a couple of, of days ago. That's awesome. So I mean, he still works in the garage and, and piddles, but as far as like the data, he's, he's been retired for, I don't know, four or five years, you know, and he spoils grandkids and does those things. That's awesome. But he He's still, he's, I know I'm I'm biased because he's my dad, but really and truly, he is an extraordinary inventor. And there it's just very rare that you find someone like that. And yeah. the, he thinks on a level that is just not like anybody else. Yeah. So he's a cool guy. That's awesome. So he's just enjoying life, being the visionary, throwing you out ideas. That's that's good. Well, yeah. I hope someday my daughter speaks words of uh, positivity like that about me. <laughs> So but yeah, no, we're still we're still privately owned. Have no intention of we want to remain privately owned. We like to be able to make our own decisions. And, awesome. Do you yeah. kind of have any goal for RDS long term? I mean, is this something that you see yourself working on next ten, fifteen years? Or absolutely cool. I have no desire to sell out. I'm still what I consider young. That that kind of target changes as you get older. Um, <laughs> I used to I used to think forty was really old, and I'm like, no, that's you know that changes. <laughs> So, no, I have no desire to sell. I'm very happy. This thing is, is, it's my passion. It is my baby. That's great. And so 10 years, I, I look at us wanting to diversify into a different industry. You know, I, I think there's a lot of synergies and correlation with water. And mm-hmm. I think water is going to be a huge issue in the next five years. And so... Definitely oil and gas side keeps me 100% busy. Mm-hmm. But at some point, you know, I just I'm starting to kind of network and, and kind of look for opportunities of how we can take what we're doing here and use it to some, solve some problems with water. And I, I could see us diversifying a little bit in 10 years. I, I've always wanted diversity. When, you're, when you have a business and you get to this, this point, you've got to start looking at diversification. It's like the rain boots and sunscreen. Mm-hmm. Dylan, I remember I had a professor that told me, you want to look at your portfolio and make sure that you're investing in sunscreen stocks and then also rain boot stocks because when it's raining you need rain boots but the sunscreen isn't doing so well and you know Mm -hmm. so yeah i do see us diversifying awesome i think the key thing that you just said though was that you're happy and you're passionate and you know after 15 years that hasn't died out you know i don't think that you can continue growing a company if you don't find happiness and enjoyment out of what you're doing so that's awesome even after 15 years that you're able to still go to day-to-day operations and, and enjoy the process. I do want to be very honest. There have been many days, though, where it's like, I'm quitting. Yeah. I'm done. <laughs> well, I'm quitting. I don't, I don't think anybody that's owned their own business can bullshit and say that they don't have those days because I know I have plenty of them myself, yeah. so <laughs> nobody's going to hold that against you. Yeah. So anyways, we got to wrap this thing up. Rebecca, where can people find you? Are you on LinkedIn? Yes. So you can find me on LinkedIn. Reservoir Data Systems has a page. You can go to reservoirdata.com and we're all there. So awesome. I, awesome. yeah, and I'm happy if, if anybody has other questions on leadership advice or, or wanting to start their own business, you know, shoot me a, an email on LinkedIn or, or you, can, you can find me on our website too. Shoot me an email and I'm happy to, to help. Perfect. That, that's all great. Right. Awesome. Well, thank you for coming on the show. Yeah, thank I really enjoyed you. this conversation. Enjoyed those nuggets of wisdom. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Oh, and I do have I have to give a shameless plug or like yeah. You know, go ahead. Go ahead. If you guys any any engineers or EMP folks that are in the room are listening to and want 
some good DFIT data or are looking at some projects for FRAC interference monitoring, give us a shout. We have really and truly a great service and we'll jump through hoops. We'll, we'll work with you and, and on your projects to get you the data that you're looking for. Definitely. So. Yeah, we know the RDS team well. They're, yeah. all, they're all great people. So if you need to get a hold of RDS, reach out to them directly or shoot me and Jake a message and we'll introduce, introduce you guys. So Thanks. thank you again, Rebecca. Thank you. It's been fun. Thanks. Thank you.